0: You hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop. How about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking queer money on the road this summer and fall. Visit queermoneypodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Money. It's a word that evokes a lot of emotion in folks. Often very different emotions. What is money? Where did it come from? Is it really the root of all evil as some have led us to believe? Is there a better way, and what can we do to learn from the history of money? You're listening to episode 239 of Queer Money. This week, we're talking to an author, reporter, and podcast host of the number one money podcast about this weird, wild, and really made-up thing we call money. Plus, stick around to the end of the show for a chance to get a free copy of our guest's new book. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. This podcast is sponsored by Capital One. Capital One is redesigning the banking experience by offering simple, straightforward, and seamless ways for you to bank from almost anywhere. So banking fits into your life, not the other way around.
1: Stressing about debt is so COVID-19-2020, No matter how or when you got stuck with your debt, make 2021 the year it disappears. Poof! Sleep better at night and live happier during the day. I'm a unicorn! Sign up for the credit card payoff plan between January 2nd and January 4th, this 2021, and get a one-time special offer, a free 45-minute 211 out of the gutter, fellas, money success session with us, the Debt Free Guys, a $197 value. Cha-ching. Now, on with the show.
0: Welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. If you are interested in money and love podcasts, but haven't heard the name Jacob Goldstein or of the show Planet Money, you might just be living under a rock. (laughs) Today, John and I are excited to welcome the host of the number one money podcast, Planet Money, Jacob Goldstein, to our little podcast. Welcome, Jacob. Hi.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Definitely. We're excited to have you here. So you've recently written a book called Money, the true story of a made up thing, which uh, John and I are seeing pop up all over the place since it was, uh, it was published, I think, uh, back in August or September. Uh, we started seeing little articles pop up about the book in a lot of different places. So I guess when we, Think about made up things. Oftentimes, we're th- we think of things like unicorns and elves and Santa Claus. <laughs> so, then is something so important to us like money a completely made up thing?
1: <laughs>
2: yes, yes, it is. And also, to be clear, Santa Claus and unicorns and elves are also important. I yeah, I know. Yeah. Yes. I'm not sure from the structure. Of <laughs> your sabotaging
1: question. some children's Christmas.
0: <laughs> so. <laughs> right. They are definitely important. <laughs>
2: It is, though. I mean, it's a fun way to think of it for me, right? Because we think of money as being this very sort of concrete, maybe kind of intimidating thing. It feels like this kind of force of nature. But truly, money does not exist in nature, right? It is a thing that people got together and made up. And not just once, right? It's not just like once everybody's like, okay, let's have money. And then it existed. But it's a thing we sort of have constantly Made up again and again in different ways, and and we're still doing it. You know, we're still reimagining and reinventing money.
0: That is an interesting thing when you say that because when we first saw that title or we first started reading the book and we thought about this idea, this is a made up thing. And I'm like, but I have coins and I have <laughs> paper. How is this something tangible that I could actually touch? And then when you start to understand the concepts around it, it makes a little bit more sense.
2: Yeah. I mean, paper is real. Paper is a thing of the world. (laughs) And metal is real. Metal is a thing of the world. But it's not the metal or the paper that makes the coins and the bills money, right? Mm -hmm. It's the made up part, the part we are all sort of agreeing on. That's the money part of it. The paper part is irrelevant.
1: And you talk in the in the book that you know we we basically started out with a bartering system, and I think at some point in the history of money, people were carrying rocks around, (laughs) like (laughs) boulders, Um, and then eventually, at some time or another, uh, John Law came into the picture, and he practically created what our, our current modern economy is today. And so, did that sort of was that all? Were was that planting the seed of capitalism? Was this the inevitable path for us to go down?
2: Well, inevitable. I, uh, inevitable is a big word. I don't know if it was inevitable. It certainly is the path we went down. You know, there are there are kind of lots of origin stories of money. In a way, the book is a series of different origin stories. And you know, you see paper money being invented in China a thousand years ago. Coins had already existed by that point for more than a thousand years. And as you say, in in Western Europe, you have this really amazing life story of this guy, John Law, around 1700. He was born in the 1600s and lived into the 1700s. And that was a moment in Europe when you see maybe even all of the like essential pieces of modern financial capitalism starting to kind of swirl around and come together. And so John Law is one of the amazing stories in the history of money. And and sort of from our point of view, uh, a lot of the origins of the kind of financial and economic world we live in flow through his life.
0: It's interesting because a lot of us want to look at all of this from our own perspective of where we're at in our point in time. We look back and we think to somebody carrying a 42 pound something or other on their back, how ridiculous <laughs> yes. that is. Yes. We know that probably some point in the future, People will look back on us and say, you carried what in your pocket? How ridiculous that is, right? Pennies already seem ridiculous, (laughs) right? That's true. I totally agree. (laughs) (laughs) We all kind of, I think we want to understand it from the perspective where we're at in this point in time. And I think that's why we're kind of curious. These amazing stories that you tell in the book have led us to the point that we're at And a lot of people maybe are frustrated with where we're at, especially I think many of us in this point in time right now dealing with quarantine and COVID and the economy and a lot of people want to point fingers and point blame. And oftentimes there's a lot of pointing blame at capitalism for some of these problems So this argument against capitalism that has created kind of this chasm between the haves and the have-nots on several occasions in your book, especially when you talk about modern money theory, which if you haven't learned or at least read a little bit about modern money theory, I would suggest that you start with this book as kind of a taste of what it is, because it can get very deep. But you allude to all this in your book. Why is it not that money is a zero-sum game? why is it that there isn't the haves and the have-nots? Why is it that there's just this kind of endless supply, or what many people would consider this endless supply of money?
2: So, okay, so there's a lot in that question. So so to be clear in the world, there are haves and have-nots, right? To state Absolutely. the obvious, there are some people who have a lot, and there are some people who have nothing or almost nothing. So there is vast inequality in the world, and it would be nice to figure out a way we could have less inequality. That said, I think a lot of people have kind of intuitive feeling that the world is a zero-sum game, which means, you know, if one person is getting more, if one person is becoming better off, that must mean that that more that person's getting is coming out of somebody else's pocket. The idea that the only way to get richer is for someone else to get poorer. And that is absolutely false. Like, that is, that is absolutely not true. And, like, the big important idea in economics, as far as I'm concerned, is the idea Well, it goes under a really boring name. It's productivity gains, right? And productivity gains in economics doesn't mean like having a to-do list or like personal productivity things, although that's sort of adjacent. It means it's this idea that over time, especially over the last couple hundred years, we have figured out ways, new technologies, new just practices that a certain amount of work, whatever, an hour of work, a day of work, an hour of work, a day of work, just produces more stuff, right? If you think of how much... A farmer can grow now versus a farmer 200 years ago. It's incredibly more, right? So, one day of farming produces hundreds or thousands of times more food than it did 100 years ago, 200 years ago. And that's true, you know, all across everything we can think of. People with machines, with technology are much better at making stuff. And so, what that means is there is more to go around now than there used to be. There is more for everybody. Now, One particular problem, or at least one particular fact of life in the U.S. over the past 30, 40 years is most of those productivity gains, those gains that could be going to everybody, have largely gone to people who are very rich, people at the top of the income distribution. And so I think that's part of the reason that people think now, oh, any gains are just ripping people off. It doesn't have to be that way, right? We can have productivity gains that everybody shares in. And over the long run, you know, over the many generations, hundreds of years run, most people in most of the world have gotten better off generation after generation. And that could continue.
0: Yeah. So I'm curious if you think that That kind of the idea of tangibility of money, or at least in the past, the tangibility of money has kind of helped with this idea of money being a zero-sum game. Like if I have $20 and I need something and I pay you for that something and I now have less than $20, we kind of have this idea that, well, I must have less now because I bought something from you that are because I, I have a limited supply of money, that if I have to give it to someone else, then my limited supply means that you're getting a greater supply. That's kind of that haves and the have-nots, even though yeah. we are purchasing a product?
2: I do think that. I mean, I think, you know, what you're talking about reminds me a lot of of the gold standard, basically, right? Of right. this idea where money ultimately is is gold or a claim on gold, right? And gold is in fact finite. There's a certain amount of gold in the world. I mean, you can dig up more, but there's a cost to dig up more. And so if I have more gold, then somebody else has less, right? And I still think that people have a kind of gold standard mentality about money, uh, that it is fundamentally finite and and zero-sum.
0: Right. But, but it isn't. Right. Well, I think especially now when we think about the fact that most of the money in the world is not anything tangible. It's it's zeros and ones inside of a computer, right?
2: That's right. That's right. I mean, you know, I think if if you say to somebody, close your eyes and think of money, most of us would think of whatever a twenty dollar bill or something, <laughs> paper, a piece of paper, or some coins, stack of coins. But in fact, the vast majority of money now is. Uh, Money people have in their bank accounts, right? I mean, if you think of yourself or myself, I know I have much more money in my checking account than I have in, you know, pieces of paper in my wallet. If I have any pieces of paper in my wallet at all, they're probably just old receipts or something at this point, right? Right. And so, you know, what you should think of when somebody says, close your eyes and think of money, is like whatever, a server at, you know, Chase Bank (laughs) or something, because that's really what money is. It's just a record on a ledger. Right. And not even a physical ledger. If you think of a ledger as a book with numbers in it, it's not that either. <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> think of you know your, your banking app on your phone, the little number next uh, where it says what your balance is. That is money. That is what money is now. There's not a stack of bills in the bank that corresponds to that number. It's just a number.
1: So I have to ad- admit, you challenged my old way of thinking because I was I've always thought that Ever since we left the gold standard, we've kind of depreciated uh, or the the value of money. We've made it a little bit m- more fake, so to speak. And then you know when we went through the 2008 2009 financial crisis, we started to print money, you know ad nauseum. And then we've now got such low interest rates. It almost seems like all of the old structures of money. And to your point, nobody carries. Well, we don't carry cash in our our wallet either. But I remember growing up, my dad always had several bills in his wallet that was that was money that whole the system has kind of changed do you see any risks or concern that we have we don't have the gold standard we don't uh, we have such low interest rates and that we are sort of just printing money
2: well that's an interesting question so i mean the gold standard i think was pretty clearly a bad idea i mean in the book i tell the story of how the gold standard largely caused the great depression and how going off the gold standard started to bring us out of the Great Depression. I mean, in terms of today, it is really interesting how for the past 10 years, inflation and interest rates have been so low, even as the government has been running high deficits. And even as, you know, if you go back say a year ago, just before the pandemic, unemployment was very, very low. It was at like historic lows, you know, below 4%, I believe. And so you had this world where the government is running large deficits and unemployment is super low and inflation and interest rates are super low, which sort of shouldn't exist based on the kind of basic economic models we use to think about the world, right? Right. The, The basic models say, well, if unemployment is really low and there's huge deficits, inflation should start to go up, Uh, interest rates should start to go up along with it. It should get harder for the government to borrow money. The Fed will need to raise interest rates. But that didn't happen. And that's like a really interesting macroeconomic sort of mystery. And it does suggest that the kind of basic rules about money and monetary policy may not work quite the way we thought they did.
1: Do you think that was accidental? Or do you think that was somebody smarter than all of us (laughs) was strategic?
2: (laughs) I mean, it's too big for somebody to do it, right? I mean, if you think about inflation, or if you think about even the interest that the US Treasury has to pay on its bonds, like, Mm -hmm. no one person can control that. That, That's everybody, right? Inflation is a function of everybody buying things. It's a function of, you know, wages. It's a function of, of really the sort of global economic activity, right? So I think it's it's the result of great big global forces, right? Like technological change helps make things cheaper, right? Like we've seen with electronics, but also if you're getting more sort of efficiency, globalization means, you know, you can find new producers that are lower cost. So that pushes that keeps prices from going up too fast, that keeps inflation low. And then on the side of interest rates, you know, everybody wants dollars, everybody wants treasuries, but really everybody wants safe assets. There's this incredible sort of search for safe assets all around the world right now. So developed countries like the US can borrow money really cheaply, right? The classic reason you worry about Big deficits is that interest rates will go up. People will say, "Oh my gosh, the U.S. government is in so much debt. I'm afraid they're going to have inflation, and so I'm going to demand higher interest rates to lend money to the U.S." But that's not happening. People are desperate to lend money to the U.S. You know, the U.S. can borrow money for what one percent interest for ten years. Like that's a great deal. That's a that's a that's good borrowing. You know,
1: it is good borrowing, but you know, we have Americans in in more debt than ever, and we have the government in more debt than ever. Is that something that can continue?
2: I think it's important to distinguish government debt from private debt. The U.S. government is in a very different situation in terms of borrowing than a household, you know, and it's tempting to sort of compare them and politicians like to do that. But they're really not the same. I mean, the U.S. government can print money, essentially. Everybody around the world wants to loan money to the U.S. government. It is possible that Inflation could go up again. It is possible that you know people might suddenly decide they don't want to lend money to the U.S. government. But that, at least at this moment, certainly while unemployment is still so high, uh, while you know the economy is still in a lot of trouble because of the pandemic, I would say that this is not the time to worry about that. You know, that's a conversation maybe for after the pandemic. Household debt is quite different, right? You can't print your own money in your household, and so that is a conversation that is like you know sort of a household by household conversation Mm -hmm. and quite different than government debt.
0: And I think that's maybe why people feel a little frustrated in the, even before the pandemic, I think people were feeling a little frustrated with the way things were going in the economy, because it seems like a lot of these macro effects that are happening in the economy are maybe only helping a smaller number of people. Now, granted, I mean, a lot of us can go out and buy homes, borrow money to buy a home much cheaper, or borrow money to buy a car or the things that we want, put things on our credit cards, all that much cheaper than what we could have in the past. But I'm still thinking about this whole idea of the haves and the have nots, which many people then turn and, again, point the finger at capitalism, which is a very common thing in the LGBTQ community for folks to look unfavorably on capitalism. I don't want to say everyone, but one of the things that we have noticed is that there's this kind of desire or attempt for folks who are anti-capitalism or at least on the edge of anti-capitalism to kind of want to live in this free economy. They don't want to have these exorbitant prices and they want, whether it's giving away their services for free or offering them at really, really low rates, there's this whole idea of let's get away from capitalism. Is there a way for us to be living in a capitalism system and trying to also oppose it? I mean... Sure. I get, I mean,
2: people should do what they want, right? Like if people aren't hurting other people, it's fine. It's, people should do what they want. Like I personally, I'm not fundamentally opposed to capitalism. I think you could have capitalism with more redistribution than we have now. You could have capitalism with a better safety net than we have now. That's, you know, when people talk about say Scandinavia, like those countries are very capitalist. You just get Healthcare, right? <laughs> you just get childcare. Child. But like they have firms and they make profits and people get rich. To me, that seems like a, a reasonable model. But I feel like people should essentially do what they want as long as they're not hurting others. You know what I mean? If people don't like capitalism, that's that's fair. People are allowed to not like capitalism.
1: Absolutely. And I think with the challenge seems to be is that the goal is to live in a free economy. So I'm going to lower my rates. I'm going to offer my rates at free at $0, and I expect others to do the same. But then there's this, um, and while I'm, I'm doing what I want to do and I'm living in this, this self-created, somewhat free economy, then I'm going to struggle because I don't have enough money to be able to pay for everything else that I need. And so right. There's, there's, if you give away your
2: services... And not everybody else gives away their services. I feel like there's going to be a math problem, yes. right? And that seems like that would reveal itself fairly quickly. I don't, I, this is something I'm not familiar with. I feel like you guys are much more familiar with it. So, I mean, maybe you can tell me, like, is this a, a thing you have observed or something you've been, that troubles you? I feel like this is a thing particular to your experience that I'm frankly not familiar with. Well,
0: it, it is a concern that John and I see or or have, especially folks in our community who I don't want to necessarily, they they are on that edge of anti-capitalism and they Uh are hoping for this economy that that basically breaks away from the boogeyman of capitalism. And we oftentimes see those are the individuals who lower the cost of their services or, or goods so low That then they get into a point where they themselves are not able to sustain themselves or sustain their businesses, Uh which then Uh in turn makes them point the finger more at capitalism to say, Uh the capitalism is doing this to me because everybody else is making so much more money than me. And that's why we kind of wonder is there, are we truly living in a capitalist society or is it some other? Mutation of it today.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, people talk about a mixed economy, right? We're basically living in a capitalist society, but the government does a tremendous amount, right? I mean, kids go to school for free if you're over, uh, you know, if, if you're elderly, you get healthcare for free, etc. I mean, I'll say here's one thing from the book that's a little bit tangential to what you're talking about, but, but when you're talking about people who want to live in a kind of exchange or non-capitalistic society, it does remind me of of a sort of story at the beginning of the book, which is, you know, people used to think that that money evolved from barter because it sort of feels that way, right? Like Mm -hmm. money as a solution to the kind of inconvenience of barter. But in fact, when anthropologists started going around the world in the 20th century and observing societies that didn't use money, you know, that were small, you know tribes say groups of you know groups of people largely kinship relations what they found was not so much barter they found you know the groups were largely self sufficient but they found these groups had a lot of really strict rules about giving gifts, say, and then uh, reciprocity for those gifts. And they had rules about what you had to give somebody's family if you wanted to marry them, you know, often say some number of cattle or something like that. And they had rules if you had murdered somebody in somebody's family, uh, what you had to give to that family. And this set of rules in many different societies largely governed the exchange of material things, right? And that, is what people now believe is the origin of money, right? This in a small society where there is not money, you can basically have rules about giving and getting stuff, gifts uh, that that function that that serve the function that money serves for us, and and uh, again, I don't know, but based on what you're telling me, it seems like that may be the kind of thing that the the people you're talking about are thinking of, right? This nice thing where it's like, I have this service I provide, and then you provide your service to me, and we don't need money. I mean, I think that the thing is, those work because those are quite small societies. Those rules are built up over a long period of time. They're enforced by essentially everyone in the society. So trying to sort of create those from scratch in the modern world seems very difficult, right? right? It seems like that is the kind of thing that I think of when you say it, but I don't know how you get there from here
0: right well it you know it's interesting that you 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 bring that into the picture here of this idea of these these controls or agreements that the tribe or the small group of people have those are the kinds of things that can oftentimes control the things that we see getting out of control in the world today when it comes to the haves and have-nots. And that's this idea of of greed and selfishness, which is is something you brought up in the book. If we all kind of went along with this agreement that we wouldn't allow our greed and selfishness to get out of control, then we could have maybe a moneyless system
2: Yeah, I mean, to have a moneyless system, you basically either need to have a really small society, like, you know, a group of people where everybody knows each other, or you need to have essentially like a totalitarian government that is just, you know, taking everything everybody makes and and redistributing it. Like, I don't really think, those are the only two ways I could imagine you could have a society without money. Mm -hmm. I mean, so that, you know, I I feel like neither of those is going to work for me.
0: Right, you know, like,
2: <laughs> right. the I, well, I don't know can do out. what they want. Right, <laughs> it would it,
0: it would take a, a long time to get there, and a lot of rules to get there, and a lot of agreement I mean, on all of those like, rules. Think of like
2: communes, right? People tried have tried, I, mean, I suppose still are trying, right? Like, you know, where they all, you know, some number of people, this goes back hundreds of years, right? In the 19th century, there were these kind of utopian communities, right? Where people would go off to the woods somewhere and try and build their own community and be self-sufficient and, and equal and whatever. And those don't sound that good to me either, frankly. <laughs> like, I, I kind of get the appeal, but, I, I live, you know, in my experience in life, I don't want to live in a utopian community.
1: And I, and I guess what we're getting at is, is, is on pages 130 and 131 of Money, you Uh-oh. say, quote. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a
0: copy of the book. No, no. we're not going to hold you to it. <laughs>
1: you can't tell us. You don't have your whole book memorized. <laughs> okay. Almost. But you say, the important question at the time, and indeed the question we should always be asking is, How can we design a monetary system that channels that greed and selfishness and while towards socially useful ends and limits the potential harm inherent in finance? So I I guess maybe what what this is all coming from is, we've talked about the haves and the have-nots, and some people feel like whether capitalism is the best system that there is, even though it may not be a perfect system, some people feel like it's not working for them. So with that in mind, is there a way to do money better?
2: So to be clear, just to put in context the sentence you read, the, the idea there, so that's talking about about banking, finance in particular, and the idea there is greed is a is I think a very basic human characteristic, right? And so seeking a world without greed seems unrealistic to me. A better notion seems to be if we accept that greed exists in people, how can we build, in this case, a financial system that allows for greed, that doesn't try and stamp out greed, but that rather allows for people to behave in greedy ways that are not destructive, right? That are not harmful to the economy as a whole. And I mean, that to me is a useful way to think about this, right? Like, I don't expect a revolution in human consciousness but I think you know, you know, there are reasonable arguments that you can do things that, frankly, sound quite boring. If you start with revolution in human consciousness, like I don't know, maybe raise mar- you know, raise taxes on capital gains. Right? Sounds super boring, but in fact, capital gains, which is you know, money you make off of investments, are concentrated very, very, very heavily among rich people. Right? right. Mm-hmm. Ordinary people just don't have much capital gains. And so if you were to raise taxes on capital gains, the effect would be you would collect a lot more taxes from rich people and not that much more taxes from everybody else. Right. So like this is an incremental thing you could do. You could expand the earned income tax credit, which is basically uh, giving money to low income people who work. Right. That is a popular politically popular and pretty clearly socially useful program. Right. Gives low income working people more money. It's largely directed now at people who have kids, but there have been proposals to give it to more people, right? So, like, boring things are appealing to me in a way that sort of revolution is not. You know, I'm a middle aged dad. I am who I am.
0: (laughs) And now a quick word from our sponsor Capital One's checking and savings accounts have no fees and no minimums. And with one of the best saving rates in America, you can rest easy watching your money grow with no fees to bring you down. You can open an account in about five minutes, which means you are only about five minutes away from getting your savings to grow with one of the nation's best rates.
1: Stop stressing about your debt sleep better at night and live happier during the day. Sign up for the credit card payoff plan between January 2nd and January 4th, 2021 and get a one-time special offer, a 45-minute 211 money success session with us, the Debt Free Guys, a $197 value for free. I
0: agree with you that there are a lot of boring things out there that could be fixes. But I think there's also a lot of people out there who thrive with about this idea of advancement and how quickly we can move forward and uh, that our technology is going to fix everything. But we have examples of how that didn't necessarily fix things in the past. And maybe that's why so so many people are struggling in this movement forward. In your book, you talk about the Luddites. For folks, if if you're not familiar with the the story of the Luddites, they're basically individuals who during the Industrial Revolution didn't want to see advancements in the production of cotton and the production of textiles and fabrics because it meant that they were going to lose their jobs. And I I think we're kind of stuck in a place similar to that today where we see a lot of folks in this new technological advancement into automation and people are losing their jobs, do we have to create more systems then to take care of these kinds of folks? I mean, what do we do with the individuals today who are in that kind of are we going to have to always rely on government raising more taxes and providing services or subsidies to individuals during these kinds of changes?
2: So yeah, that's a good question. Right. So the Luddites, you know, there is this meaning of Luddite today, which is like, oh, somebody who just sort of reflexively does not like technology, right? But the Luddites, as you point out, they were skilled workers, skilled artisans who who uh, made cloth in England in the early 1800s. And the the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, the beginning of this era of, you know, constant technological change and economic growth, really, was all about cloth in England, cloth making in England. So they were the sort of first kind of victims in some ways of the Industrial Revolution. And they went and, you know, invented this fictitious General Ludd who wrote these threatening (laughs) letters, and they took sledgehammers and like, Broke into factories and actually smashed the machines uh, that were taking their jobs. So it was very dramatic. And as you point out, I mean, they were not wrong, right? They were, they were, they were, in fact, losing their jobs to machines because the machines could do what they did. And and for a long time, wages didn't go up for workers in England. Eventually, they did, and England became rich, and the and even the working people of England became much better off. Uh, Because of the Industrial Revolution, but it took, you know, generations. And so, as you point out, here we are again in a technological revolution uh, that has harming some people. I mean, I will say, well, a few things. One is, again, if you go back to the moment just before the pandemic, wages were finally going up, right? unemployment was very, very, very low. And wages were going up for low-income workers. Not, not It wasn't just rich people getting rich. Poor people were becoming less poor. Wages really were going up. And I think another boring solution that I like is full employment, right? Like the fact that we got basically to full employment a year ago, even in the midst of all of this technological change, suggests that there is still stuff that people will pay other people to do and suggest that we're not yet, at least at a point where the robots have taken everybody's job. So, you know, having, say, the Federal Reserve willing to keep interest rates really low until unemployment gets way back down and wages start going up. That is another boring thing that is a big deal. Right. And I and I believe that can be helpful to working
0: people, you know, to people who are not rich, who who live off their wages. I struggle with this uh, this right now because I see folks who are railing against capitalism and I f- see folks who are railing against uh, technology and I see things changing fortunately I being in the position I I'm, I'm in I'm not one of those individuals who has struggled but I think a lot of us uh because of market forces have, are are seeing a larger number of individuals, especially during the pandemic, but prior to that, a large number of individuals who appear to be struggling. And we see a larger number of individuals who seem to, because of technology, because of the ability to, to, in some ways, not have to pay for humans to process the way we used to that there is this yeah. growing divide, and more it seems like most people want to blame that on money if we would just get rid of money, then we wouldn't have this problem but it's you know it's this is a it seems to be a history repeating itself cycle that happens over and over again I mean, if we got rid of money now, we would live in a totalitarian state <laughs> right. right if we got rid of
2: money now, we'd live in a state where the government took everything you made and decided what you got like I can't imagine what else would happen. I mean, yeah, it's hard for me to think of the other option. I mean, I'll say one other thing, you know, that may be encouraging in the context you're talking about. I don't know. In, was it March or April, the government, sort of surprisingly, given the way the federal government has worked, very quickly passed this very large bill to help the economy, help people during the pandemic. And it, you know, there were the $1,200 checks. But on top of that, more important than that, there was a very large extra unemployment payments, right? So in a typical state, states administer unemployment insurance. If you lose your job, you get something like $400 a week of unemployment insurance. The federal government added on top of that an extra $600 a week like a lot of money, right? So, Mm -hmm. so the typical person on unemployment in the spring and into the summer was getting something like a thousand dollars a week, which, you know, that's like $50,000 a year. That's okay, right? Like for unemployment insurance, that's like a good safety net. And so the fact that that happened, oh, and by the way, the household savings rates went up to like historic levels when that happened right mm-hmm. people were using that money they were saving that money uh and so that to me i mean many bad things happened this year and the government failed in many ways i think it's fair to say but that was that was a success right like people got money they saved it uh the government got it out to them like that was a thing that worked and so you know uh that that's maybe a little hopeful i feel like you guys are fighting this interesting fight that i Or I don't know, like, I'm curious about your role, like you keep talking about every, you know, being in a community, I guess, where lots of people are just fundamentally anti capitalism. So you feel like,
1: where do you guys fit in that? I'm curious. So I I, I don't think we see a lot of people who are anti capitalist, I think we see some folks who are struggling. And I think we have, Uh I think we have some folks who are maybe lean more, a little bit more liberal than your typical liberal. Okay. And so I think we see that we see this challenge of folks who you are for example, are trying to start their own business. And I'm thinking of one individual in particular, they start trying to start their own cupcake business and she's so adamant about donating 20% of her profits to an LGBT cause that she's not able to get her business off the ground. So she's looking for donations to fund her business so that she can then donate money to, uh, to these nonprofits. And so I think we, we kind yes. of, ex- David and I it's personally, like, well,
2: why don't the people who are giving her money just give the money to the nonprofits and cut out the cupcakes? Right? Exactly.
1: And then I'd be skinnier, right? So I think David and I, are- <laughs> I'm not against cupcakes. I don't want a big cupcake coming after me. <laughs> so David and I, are, you know, we're, we're, we're cis white middle-class men. We, you know, everything has worked in our favor and we have benefited from that, but we also kind of have yeah. one foot, in sort of another world where we see that there are challenges and people struggling. And very often, I think that the challenges that we see coming at uh, from our perspective is that for all intents and purposes we think capitalism works I don't. I don't think that it's a perfect system but I from from what I understand and I'm not the smartest person in the world from what I understand it's the best system that we've been able to come up with so far could it be improved yes are there people that take advantage of it yes um, are there people that are being left behind yes and so with that in, in, in mind we're just trying to figure out is there is there a way that maybe it's messaging to our community uh, maybe we need to maybe it's more education and explanation of how money works and and how it can benefit more people, or at least yeah. capitalism, or maybe it is that the system is completely broken and we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater and uh, and start something altogether new. And, and that's kind I of where we're feel coming like from.
2: It would be easier to make the case in like 1968 that you guys are trying to make. It sounds like you know that that was a time when, for the you know 20 years before that, income inequality had been falling. Right, like the decades after the uh, Second World War were a time when the middle class was getting richer and the rich were, uh, if not getting poorer, like getting richer slower than everybody else. Right. So it was sort of the opposite of now. I do think it's harder to make the case for, you know, economic growth being good for everybody after 30 or 40 years when economic growth has mostly been good for really rich people. And Mm -hmm. like I'm a reporter, I like telling stories. I'm not I don't want to make an argument or be an apologist for capitalism or anything like that. But I do think people who do want to do those things would be suited, you know, it would benefit them to figure out a way for people with less money to start benefiting more, right? Like if you really believe in capitalism and economic growth, then it would behoove you to figure out how people at the bottom of the income distribution could benefit more from capitalism and economic growth than they have been. Right. So it's understandable why lots of people are angry and think the system isn't working because it's clearly not working for lots of people. Absolutely.
1: Right. And I think to my to my my point is, is that even if it's not a perfect system and it's not benefiting everybody, it's probably easier to get on board and help influence it than it is to try to change it, right? As, as an individual, right? We're not all in Washington that has a lot of influence. So maybe it's just better to hop on board and to the extent that you can as an individual in your circle of influence, try to make capitalism benefit more people in your neighborhood.
2: Yeah. I mean, again, I do think people should do what they want, as long as they're not hurting other people. If people want to want to preach revolution, that's okay. I, I believe in, you know, in ideas.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and you know, one of the things we brought out at the beginning was this idea of we we all are looking at this from our own viewpoint, right? Where we stand in the socioeconomic structure is going to, kind of have an influence on how we see and perceive capitalism or how we see and perceive what is going on with the monetary systems. And the thing that I love about the book is that there's so many of these stories that are woven into your discussion about how money has changed over the centuries and, and millennia. And oftentimes I think that we get so stuck in our own viewpoint, or we get stuck in our own, uh, the, the stories that we have been told, we don't explore the other stories that help us understand how we got to the point we're at today, and what we can learn from other people's stories to help our lives get better or help the lives of others get better. And Instead, we just use our own lens to point fingers at or to complain or to to get disappointed or upset or frustrated or depressed about where we're at. And it's the the idea of sharing these stories that help us understand how other people have made, taken the exact same system that we're both in. And some people have used it to their advantage and some people haven't been able to.
2: Yeah, and and I mean even beyond the lens of inequality that we've been talking about, I mean one of the really interesting things when you look at history and and read these different stories is you realize that the world has worked many different ways. Money has worked many different ways. It really is, you know, a choice. Money, the way money works is is a set of choices that we're all making. So to some extent the people who you're talking about who, you know, want to do things really differently like they might be inspired by the, by the book in some way because money has changed a lot and people have you know gotten together and said, we're gonna change the way money works and they have succeeded. Like money will not continue to work the way it works now. It will be really different in the future. We just don't know how, but change is possible and ultimately inevitable.
1: Right, but well, we, we almost kind of see that Change happening now, right? We talked about the Luddites and, and tech and technology revolution that we're in, and you alluded to this in your book, and we also read it in uh, Yuval Noah Harari's book *Sapiens*, uh, referencing um, some you know something that he calls sort of the useless class because technology is going to beca- going to become so ubiquitous, and because that's going to put a lot of people out of work. There's, you know, the challenges, what do we do with all these folks who don't necessarily fit into the current economy based on their skills or the the value that they're able to add at, the, at that point in time? Where do you kind of see that transitioning? And, and what do you think might be a solution to help address those people's concerns?
2: Well, I should say it's not obvious that that is going to happen, right? there. There is this notion, well, what if computers, robots can do all the things that people do. It's possible that that will happen, but it is also the case that in one form or another that has been happening for the last basically 200 years, more now, 220 or so years, where you have new technologies that come in and do work that people used to do. But what happens over time is those new technologies make the things cheaper. That you know, The tractor makes food cheaper, the mm-hmm. flying shuttle makes clothes cheaper, and so, people, everybody has more money to buy new stuff, right? To buy more books, to whatever, listen to podcasts, to subscribe to Netflix, to get a personal trainer. And so you get new jobs that didn't exist before, right? So at least what we have seen for hundreds of years of technological changes, machines do new jobs that people couldn't do, and then new jobs are created. So I am not convinced that there will be a large useless class. Again, just a year ago, with all the technology we have, unemployment was below 4% and wages were going up even you know for ordinary working people
0: so i'm not sold on the idea that robots are going to take our jobs
1: <laughs> i should be afraid
0: well <laughs> i, I I'll, I'll give a cheer for that because i just hope that they don't uh, john and i have kind of talked about this too who's going to take care of all the robots right i mean uh,
2: <laughs> well we know that being a computer programmer is a good job although computer programmers <laughs> talk about the possibility of basically computers being able to program computers or Computer programming becoming sort of semi automated so that you don't need a skilled person for that, right? I had an interesting conversation with a coder who was like, Well, what if you could write the code to write code? Then nobody would need to write code anymore.
1: And then, like, 100,000 100, we'll years from now, we're living in, in the Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> <laughs> right? Or Wally. Remember in Wally? Yes. Where the guys
2: are just sitting in the chairs in and, and yeah. space and not doing anything. We talk about
1: Wally a lot. Right. So, so it, sound, <laughs> so it sound, sounds like you're, you're, you're more aligned with thinking that technology will sort of birth new jobs and careers for people in a way that we're not necessarily able to to envision right now.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a good chance of that. Like, it is also important. It's possible that that will happen, but that it's also very likely that lots of people will be displaced along the way, right? I mean, clearly that has already happened. And from trade as well, frankly, right? There was this very good series of economic papers that talked about the China shock, where when China entered the World Trade Organization around the turn of this century, lots of communities in the US that had manufactured things that were now coming from China were harmed, right? And this is the kind of thing that is obvious to a normal person, but that economists have to sort of discover for themselves. Um, (laughs) But they, they did discover it, and it was compelling. And the guy he wrote those papers as a thoughtful economist, and he was like, "Well, look, what we need to get better at is helping people in the transition, right? right. Like clearly, right. the economy goes on. there are still things to do, but we should get better at helping people who are, you know, concretely and immediately harmed, whose whose factories closed because a new one in China is making the cheaper thing. We should do more for those people, and we should think about technological change that way too. not not, oh, nobody's going to have a job. We need some, you know, vast idea about that. Let's think about like each group of people as they lose a job. Like how can we be more helpful now to people who lose their jobs?
1: Right. And I think that's the messaging that kind of gets lost on 24-hour news networks, right? You know, somebody says we need to break away from coal and all of a sudden everybody who works in coal is thinking to me that this politician just wants to put me out of work. And that's, you know, there's there's some messaging that's getting missed in there, but it doesn't actually get clicks and eyeballs.
2: Yes. I mean We can't fix cable
0: news. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we're on podcasts. (laughs) That's right. So we just have two last kind of fun questions for you. Because of your experience of doing all this research around money, we're kind of curious if you look into your crystal ball, what do you see the future of money looking like? I know towards the end of your book there was the discussion of money going to being much more electronic with bitcoin and and the, the cryptocurrencies so what where do you see money going? So. I mean, my first answer and the most honest answer is I don't
2: know. (laughs) Uh, And that is not that is like a well-earned. I don't know. Right. Tried hard. (laughs) Well, like a big lesson of the book to me is there are these big changes that most people don't see coming and that really smart people even don't see coming. So maybe I'm really smart and maybe I'm not. But being really smart doesn't necessarily help you see what's coming. So, and that's kind of exciting, right, to just think who knows. Maybe it's a little scary also. Yeah, it's a little scary also. Uh <laughs> you know, so you mentioned Bitcoin. I don't think Bitcoin is going to be like the money everybody uses anytime soon and the biggest reason for that is that you know it was explicitly designed to be money without the government right uh, without right. any government. That was like the dream of the people we don't know exactly who invented Bitcoin exactly, but it came out of this community that was trying to solve this problem for like twenty years of how do we have electronic money without any government, even without any intermediary? It's just kind of money that runs itself on the internet and amazingly, they sort of figured it out technologically, it's really an incredible uh, thing uh, but I don't think governments are going to let go of money. And I don't think people particularly want governments to let go of money. Obviously some people do, but I think most people don't really care. And it's, you know, basically functional the way it works now. I mean, there's lots of economic problems, but you can't blame those necessarily on money itself. So I don't really think Bitcoin is going to be what we all use to buy stuff. now. I mean, you could say electronic money, we all kind of use electronic money already. And governments are working on sort of making money more electronic. But you know, as I said before, like, if you think of money, you should just think of like, when you log into your bank account, that number you see, that's really what money is now. And that is electronic already. So we're kind of already there in in some way.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, as you're explaining that to me, I think, when I watch the folks on CNBC talk about Bitcoin, it reminds me a lot of when I listen to some of my friends talk about fantasy football. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's like this thing that doesn't really exist, but we're obsessed with it. And it's a nice hobby. And it could and, possibly, and in possibly go away. Cases,
2: there's a lot of money on the line. So. Exactly.
0: exactly. Yeah. I think I was just looking at the financial news feed this morning before we were starting this podcast, and I see that Bitcoin is ge- approaching back to those highs that it was at before. So... Yes. Well, it's
2: teens. It's something you know, fifteen thousand dollars or eighteen thousand dollars for one bitcoin, which is incredible. I mean, yeah, it's not. I don't know what's going on. We're yeah,
0: sticking with, with the that. stock market, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, and this is to me if if you were to say this is a made-up thing, that's where I, I'm like, wait a second, this is a made-up. <laughs> it feels thing. very made up. <laughs> <laughs> These people are trading a made-up thing. So. Yes. I mean, it is it is
2: gold gold does come to mind with Bitcoin, right? Gold is obviously real, but in the same way, you know, I mean, if you just do a basic what should something be worth? With most assets you say, what kind of cash flow will it throw off, right? Like Fundamentally, a share in a in a company is worth, you know, the stream of future profits, right? But with both gold and Bitcoin, that doesn't apply because there is no profit ever to come off of them. There's no use of them. I mean, right. theoretically, people, there's some limited use for gold, but that's not most of its value. There's some theoretical future use for Bitcoin, but like nobody is like building a spreadsheet to get the net present value of one Bitcoin, <laughs> right? That's not what they're doing. Right.
1: Talk about boring. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you can cut that. One. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. All right. Okay, so uh, you'll you'll appreciate this, but we've just deemed you the king of the world, and <laughs> I'll so take it. I don't want it. How would you use money to make things better for more people if you had that influence?
2: Oh, my answers are going to be so disappointing. I mean, for a few reasons, right? Like one is, I really am. I'm not an activist or an advocate, you know, I'm a reporter. So it's not really my place to make those kind of pronouncements. I don't think I want to be king. As I said, like, there are like, boring, simple policy things that if what you wanted was say, to reduce inequality, right? Like, you could raise uh, the capital gains tax, you could expand the earned income tax credit, you could make it easier for people to get health insurance, if they don't have a job, right? There are lots of like, Simple, boring things that would actually be a big deal to just ordinary people where the world from like if you looked at it from the moon, it wouldn't look that different. But if you looked at people's day to day lives, especially when bad things happen to them, like losing their jobs and they didn't have money in the bank, things that would really make a difference. And so, like, I'd be the most like boring technocratic king.
1: (laughs) No, but I think those are very authentic and and, and real world answers. And unfortunately, I think they get get lost in the shuffle. I know that people are working on that in Washington, uh, but it does get a lot of the media attention. And I think it's poignant that you brought that up because I think it's actually quite kind of to need. say <laughs> yeah. sorry
2: to be a boring king but that was a very yeah, nice response
0: that's okay. <laughs> well some of the most successful rulers in the past have been some of the most boring ones right <laughs> they brought people together yeah, and...
1: yeah henry the eighth didn't go down very well <laughs> 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 it was kind of an exciting guy i guess so we lied i would uh, eat a
2: turkey leg i do like the idea (laughs) of holding a turkey leg but other than that not really my thing
1: so we lied uh we do have one more question for you um a couple more questions where can our listeners buy money the true story of a made-up thing
2: anywhere you can go to amazon if you like amazon uh you mentioned that a lot of your listeners are well i don't know what wary of capitalism or wary of big companies certainly so Uh, An interesting alternative, there's a website called bookshop.org. And that's basically a way you can buy books online but support local independent bookstores. So, I mean, you can buy basically every book there, but you can also buy my book there. So that would be a place.
1: (laughs) Nice. Nice. I love it. And then, how how can our listeners uh, follow you and uh, stay on top of everything that you're working on?
2: Uh, Twitter is good. I spend an embarrassing amount of time on Twitter. I'm just at Jacob Goldstein. It's just my name.
1: Awesome. Nice. And you're also the host of the Planet Money podcast on NPR. Yeah, it can also follow you there. Yes. Well, thank you, Jacob. This has been very informative for us. Like we said, we we thoroughly enjoyed the book. Uh, We learned a, a ton ourselves, even though we've been in finance for. Let's not talk about it. And um, <laughs> this has been a very- it's amazing co- how long it is now, right? Like,
2: how, how do I have friends from 25 years ago? What does that even mean? Yeah, yeah.
1: suddenly, uh, yeah, suddenly we're feeling older and that's so, necessarily so much wiser. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we're getting there. So thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you coming on the show and uh, we appreciate having you.
0: Oh, it's great. Thanks so much. How does your bank support the LGBT community? Not at all? For Pride in June? Or 365 days a year? Capital One proudly supports the LGBT community throughout the year. Maybe it's time to support a bank that supports us. Go to DebtFreeGuys.com forward slash cafe for more info. Whether you believe money is good or bad or just is, one thing is for sure, money has a crazy impact on all of us. Thanks again for listening and sharing the Queer Money Podcast. Here's your Queer Money takeaway this week. Take some time to learn the history of money, especially if you'd like to change the way money impacts your life. That hokey PSA we all make fun of isn't just a joke. The more we know about money, the more we can control its effect on us. Get Jacob's book. We thoroughly enjoyed the stories it tells and think that you will too. Now for that book giveaway. Head on over to Instagram, And look for the picture of Jacob's book on the Queer Money podcast feed that we published on Sunday, December 6th. Follow the super simple instructions there and you'll be eligible to win a free copy of the book, Money, A True Story of a Made-Up Thing. Thanks and have a great week.
1: From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking Queer Money on the Road.